This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, a podcast where we take a look at the interconnectedness of our medieval past, the stories it holds, and how these stories directly shape the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jonathan. I want to thank everyone who is subscribing, downloading, and listening to the show, but a special thanks to those who are still sharing it on Facebook and Twitter. We're still seeing great growth, and so much of that is owed to you. Thank you. This is our fourth episode of our third season of the podcast, a season focusing predominantly on the chaos that erupted following the death of Canute the Great. Today's episode, episode 39, is entitled, The First Norman Conquest of England? I hope you enjoy the show. in quite a pickle. His claims to the throne seemed like a pretty open and shut case in England, but as we've seen, the North Sea still had other players on the pitch with different ideas and plans for the wealthy embattled island kingdom. This thing about who should rule England, outside of England, it wasn't even remotely settled. And what might be the most unfair thing about the situation is the people of England the laborers and the traders and the sailors, tasked with keeping the economy afloat. These people were the real victims of recent events. There's far more happening here than just one king dying and another one donning the crown. Do you remember that deal that Harthacnut made with his enemy, Magnus? Well, upon the death of King Harthacnut, King Magnus of Norway now moved to control Denmark, and, and because of that deal with Harthacnut, he also staked a claim to Harthacnut's English crown as well. I suppose that one's for the lawyers to sort out, but I don't know. I mean, it seems like Magnus might actually have a case here. England, I suppose, could have been his. And were it not for a man by the name of Swain Estherson, Magnus might have sailed southwest instead of southeast. Swain Estherson or Swain, son of Estrith, was a tall, handsome, dominating figure in any room he entered, and he was also a potential heir to the throne of Denmark, despite Magnus's clear-cut agreement with Harthacnut. So, decades earlier, just a few years into King Canute's rule, Swain was born to Jarl Ulf, a trusted Dane in Canute's court, and Estrith Svensdalter. Did you catch that? Sven's daughter? You could also just call her Estrith, daughter of Swain, as in Swain Forkbeard. Yeah, Estrith was Canute's very own sister, and she was married off to Ulf, a prominent Danish chieftain. That is the level of Jarl Ulf's prestige, and they, again, bore a son named Swain, named after Grandpa, of course. If you're a little confused, you're in actually really good company, I promise. North Sea politics was a steaming hot mess in the 11th century. Suffice it to say, Swain Esterson inserted himself squarely between Magnus and Magnus's English crown by saying Magnus's claim to Denmark was hardly stronger than his own claim. Swain Esterson, the nephew of Canute the Great, I mean, that had to count for something, right? That had to trump any play of Magnus's. 
Weighing the two options, one can see each claim, I suppose. Magnus's was just simple business, a gentleman's agreement, a contract by handshake. But Swain Estrison? His was blood. Oh, and Swain Estrison also reminded anyone who broached the subject of Dana's succession who it was that King Harthacanute left to lead Denmark as regent until he returned from England. Yeah, you heard that right. Swain Estrison was King Regent of Denmark while Harthacanute was out west. I don't know. This all just makes representative democracy much more appealing if you ask me. With all this stuff with Magnus and Swain Estrison, there were still some outside possibilities, though, as to who might take the crown of England. Outside possibilities, I'll stress again, but in the 11th century, without the luxury of a thousand years of hindsight, I mean, nothing really seemed off the table. Besides Canute's daughter's marriage to the Holy Roman Emperor, despite her untimely death at 17 years, well, sideways glances were surely cast toward the Empire. Luckily for all North Sea players, the Emperor had his hands completely full with a succession crisis in its vassal kingdom of Hungary, internal issues with another vassal state in Bohemia, and then there were these, these strange Frenchmen riding into southern Italy called Normans who seemed to be pestering the Pope's tenuous grasp of influence and power there. Though everything seemed at play, there wasn't much of a threat from the Germans for the time being. However, there was one huge long shot that's worth mentioning. This is my own speculation, but given this man's pattern so far, it isn't too crazy to at least consider. No records indicate anything conclusive about this guy's plans, as far as I know, but again, I think it's worth mentioning as the chaos certainly opened up a grand opportunity. I'm looking at you, Godwin, son of Wolfnoth. Godwin, up to this point, has weathered many a bloody storm since his father stole part of Ethelred's navy and he's made as many friends as enemies along the way. And there is zero question as to this man's ambitions. I mean, you don't get to be the second most powerful man in a kingdom without playing dirty from time to time. But in 1042, with Edward already physically at court, and having already been officially named what king or co-regent or whatever King Arthur Canute decided upon, Godwin thought it best to just let these cards play out. This new king was about his own age, we're assuming, and the recent run of English monarchs hasn't exactly been a long-lasting bunch. For Godwin, with a little more patience, there was still a chance down the road. And this new king, being the son to a mother already in cahoots with the powerful Earl of Wessex, well, that could open up some interesting possibilities for the Earl's progeny. Godwin decided to keep his sword sheathed. He had some thinking to do. Edward. He could prove valuable to the house of Godwin. Let's just hope he has a short memory and that he and his little brother Alfred weren't all that close. But there's something else to this whole situation. I'm not convinced that Edward wanted anything to do with it all. Yet, there he was, wearing a crown. The crown of his father and his father's father, all the way back to Alfred the Great. The good news for Edward was that, thanks to Papa Ethelred, the, um, <laughs> the expectations were, were probably at a pretty all-time low there. 
So the only way for Edward to go was up, I suppose, which might have given him breathing room. But man, was he inheriting a crap storm of a duchy. On the other hand, who on earth would want to take on such a burden? On the other, it beat the heck out of couch hopping across France. And besides, he was Edward, great-great-grandson of Alfred on his father's side, great-grandson of Rollo the Walker on his mother's, half-brother to a warrior prince, Ethelstan, two English kings, Edmund Ironsides and Harthacnut. Edward had pedigree, there's no question. Later, Edward's wife would commission a book about him called the Vita Edwardi that would say, and by the way, the following quote being the words of Peter Rex in his book, Edward the Confessor, quote, All Britain, together with the jagged islands of the adjacent kingdoms and monarchies, settled down to an era of peace under the aegis of a second Solomon, namely Edward, end quote. I don't know, though. <laughs> a second Solomon? Really? The Anglo-Saxon chronicles seem to be a bit more tempered in their anticipation of Edward's reign, but I also find this rather humorous. See, the scribes of the chronicles wrote this, quote, This year died King Harthacnut at Lambeth, as he stood drinking. He fell suddenly to the earth with a tremendous struggle, but those who were nigh at hand took him up, and he spoke not a word afterward but expired on the sixth day before the Ides of June. He was king over all England two years wanting ten nights, and he is buried in the old minster at Winchester with King Canute, his father, and his mother, for his soul, gave to the new minster the head of St. Valentine the Martyr. And where he is buried, all people chose Edward for king in London, and they received him as their king, as was natural and he reigned as long as God granted him, end quote. Dang. <laughs> I mean, you get a pretty detailed account of the death of a pretty reviled king, and only two short sentences about Edward's coronation, or acceptance. I mean, Edward's reception as king wasn't even a divine intervention either. So there goes the Solomon thing. It was just natural. I mean, that's cold. <laughs> so yeah, that was the reception Edward received. Lukewarm at best. But he did have the added bonus for the nobility in England that he, having been absent on the mainland, was a pretty blank slate in terms of allegiances in England. House of Wessex or not, Edward was certainly not sending his mother Emma any Mother's Day flowers, that was for sure. And speaking of the devil, there was one person among the nobility who was actively working against Edward's coronation. As far as Queen Emma was concerned, Edward could spend the rest of his days off hunting the elusive French snipe. And she might have had her way, too, had her nephew, Swain Esterson, not made a power grab back in Denmark. When Swain made a call for supporters of his claim, Magnus of Norway was forced to respond in kind, naturally, thus derailing Emma's plans to keep Edward from the throne. Either way, Edward wasn't happy when he heard of his mother's whatever it was, against him, which no doubt solidified his resolve in the matter. Give me a minute or two, and we'll return to this little episode, but suffice it to say, whether he wanted the crown or not, maybe he just didn't want her to have it. 
In early 1043, just when Edward's claim to England began to solidify, Swain Estrison's claim to Denmark began to wear thin. King Magnus of Norway called the claimant's bluff and pushed through Denmark fairly easily. In fact, his push was so strong that he was able to send Swain Estrison and his contingents packing for Wendland, a small kingdom in modern-day northern Poland. If you remember, Wendland was where Olaf Tryggvason married a noblewoman who died prematurely before heading off to raid Malden in 991. Having pushed that far, King Magnus decided to just cripple Danish resistance completely by crushing the semi-mythical port town of Jomsburg, which was said to have a port large enough to welcome a couple hundred Viking ships at a time. Jomsburg was also the home of the semi-mythical Viking mercenary order called Jomsvikings. Throughout the 9th, 10th, and 11th centuries, the Jomsvikings were some of the most elite warriors around, to be sure. In order to even be considered for admission into this order, you had to defeat an existing member in one-on-one combat, oftentimes to the death, but submission would certainly suffice. You had to be at least 18 years of age, having already proven yourself on the battlefield. I wouldn't go so far as to compare it to ancient Sparta, insofar that it seems Spartans had a fully integrated warrior society, while the Vikings didn't allow women and children within the battlements, not to mention they were not a self-contained warrior economy. Their own children might well have been put up for entry into the legendary clan, but unlike Sparta, there's no indication that it was a societal norm. Every warrior culture seems to be peculiar in their norms and official rules for membership, but the Vikings seem to be an especially peculiar institution. Take a look at just a few of the rules their warriors had to follow. One, there was no infighting tolerated, period. Two, outward expressions or admissions of fear was strictly forbidden and worthy of expulsion or even death. Three, all spoils were communally distributed. Four, all excursions more than a few days from the town must have explicit permission from a senior Viking official. And here is the most interesting rule of all, in my opinion. Four, under no circumstances were children or women to be taken captive. Now, I can't exactly say whether that left a loophole where they could, you know, do whatever they wanted with them before they killed them. But despite that, it also opens up another question. Scandinavian culture, pretty much like everyone else in those days, actually allowed the purchase and sale of slaves. In fact, Vikings tended to grab as many people as they could on their raids for the sole purpose of ransoming them or selling them to the highest bidder. Yom's Vikings forbidding this practice of taking hostages to make money off of them seems, I don't know, out of character for what we know about not only Vikings in general, but also of the many other cultures during the Viking, or excuse me, during the Middle Ages as well. The idealist in me would like to hinge this rule on a sense of decency and honor within Yom's Viking culture toward those unable to defend themselves, but man, (laughs) that one's a tough sale. They probably just didn't want the baggage. In and out. Do the job. Find another employer. Simple. One such figure we've already talked about who was a member of this order was Thorkel the Tall, whose son was also throwing a fit in 1042, claiming to be the rightful heir to Denmark, 
though he quickly acquiesced already and wasn't worth mention much here on the podcast. But with these guys, you got what you paid for. Jan's Vikings were mercenaries. And instead of trying to be the highest bidder, King Magnus just decided to remove them from the equation entirely. As I said, Magnus simply erased Jomsburg from the face of the earth, and we call it a semi-mythical place because we still to this day have no clue where it was exactly. I mean, many historians and archaeologists point to the modern town of Wolin in Poland, but no one's really 100% sure. Maybe we'll find the actual site one day. Don't forget that Pompeii was also semi-mythical through the ages too, until 1800 years after the eruption when it was finally discovered. But for now, Jomsborg is a part of the medieval dream world. And it was upon the destruction of Jomsborg that Denmark was finally on its knees. But that didn't stop old Swain Esterson from mounting one last push into his homeland. Later, in 1043, Esterson returned with a hefty contingent of Wends and Danes, marching his massive army into southern Jutland back in back home in Denmark. He engaged Magnus's forces outside the town of Lerskov. Today, this engagement is known as the Battle of Lerskov Heath and was fought on September 28th, and I mean, Swain's forces took a beating. Truly accurate numbers of either side just don't exist, but except for one number crossing many reports, and that number hinges around 15,000. That is, 15,000 Wends under the leadership of Swain Esterson were killed in the two-hour battle. If that's true, that is a staggering loss of life. And with this, and Swain coming out of the battle unscathed, though his skeletal remains show a possible limp, and historians can't be sure he didn't earn it during this battle, well, King Magnus not only brought Swain under his control by making him Jarl of Jutland, thus pulling pretty much the rest of Denmark into the kingdom of Norway. But this right here is the point when Magnus also earned a new nickname, a nickname he still carries today in the books, Magnus the Good. Why good, you ask? What's so good about killing 15,000 Wends? Well, some say it's precisely because he killed 15,000 Wends. Yeah, I don't get it either, but I'm convinced it was just a a bit of clever propaganda to turn his people's attentions away from the outcome of the battle and toward his treatment of the still highly respected Swain Esterson. Maybe you just, you know, (laughs) had to be there. So with his new name tag and a shiny new empire forming, all by the not-quite-ripe age of maybe 20 years old, Magnus the Good now shifted his sights to his next prize, England. But wait, while Magnus duked it out with Swain Esterson, England already chose their king, right? (laughs) Yeah, so did Denmark, and you saw how that played out. And this is when things get really interesting back in England. Back on April 3rd, 1043, before the Battle of Lersk of Heath, Edward was crowned in England. But by October, after the Battle of Lersk of Heath, things had shifted dramatically in the North Sea again. Not only has Swain Esterson lost his claim to Denmark and been humbled with a position of Jarl, but King Magnus the Good began penning threatening notes to Edward. In addition to these mean letters, 
Magnus was also gathering a fleet to launch, too. This couldn't have spelled a bigger disaster for Edward. And Godwin, for that matter. Follow me for a moment. Godwin, having risen to prominence in the 1020s, was presented with a wife, a beauty from Denmark, named Githa Thorgal's daughter. Githa was also the sister of Jarl Ulf, who, if you remember, was the brother-in-law to King Canute through his marriage with Estreth. See where this might be going? Githa, by her brother's marriage, was the sister-in-law to King Canute. With Godwin marrying Githa, he became a few things. One, the brother-in-law to King Canute. And two, the uncle-in-law to Swain Estreson, who just embarrassingly lost his claim to Denmark. And here's a side note that will play into the near future here. With this familial connection, Godwin was also entrusted with Swain's brother, Bjorn Estrithson. So hold on to that name, too. Either way you slice it, Godwin was uniquely interested in the goings-on in Denmark. And being in his position in England, he was able to appeal to the new malleable king of England to support his nephew's efforts. As the year went on, and Edward kept his eyes on Denmark, he was also keenly aware of a pattern presenting itself. Swain Estreson was losing, and by the Battle of Lersk of Heath, when Swain lost 15,000 men, well, you can't blame Edward for refusing Godwin's appeal to send support, especially with those mean letters starting to come in from Norway. But there was something else happening in 1043 as well, and it ramped up after King Magnus's wins in Denmark. Magnus was being fed information. Information about England. Behind the scenes, Magnus was being told that should he cash in his claim to England per his deal with Harthacanute, that there would be a considerable amount of support for him already in the kingdom. Somebody was fanning the flames of an outside usurper's ambitions. And then, curiously, we read in the records that in late 1043, King Edward and a contingent of noblemen rode into Winchester in Wessex. Accompanying him was some serious political muscle, too, in the men of Earl Godwin and Earl Leofrich of Mercia. King Edward ordered the removal of a massive amount of the kingdom's treasury to be housed in London, where Edward had set up court for the time being. Why? Well, first, Winchester was the ancestral home, as we've mentioned many times on the podcast, of the House of Wessex, and also the traditional location for the kingdom's treasury. But it was also the home of Edward's mother, the Dowager Queen Emma. Are you seeing a connection here? As it happened, Edward caught wind of the rumors that someone was appealing to the King of Norway to invade England. And then this happened. And taking into account Edward's and Emma's relationship, well, it's not hard to determine that it was Emma herself who was probably, in some way, behind it all. By pulling the treasury right out from under Emma, Edward sent a shot across the bow. But the other thing he told her on the way out of Winchester had a crippling effect on her base of power and influence. See, Edward ordered all of Emma's land and property to be confiscated and entered into his own bank account. Emma, politically and socially, was dead in the water, and she had no means of recourse. Emma was a survivor and a gambler, and she was a damn good one too, but 
Her gig was finally up on November 16th when her despised son marched against her and upended her decades-long apple cart. Even spiting his own mother, Edward was still able to assume control over the kingdom through a sense of friendship and kinships with the existing political, social, economic, and ecclesiastic infrastructure established under the previous three kings, though much of it obviously was established under King Canute. Edward was no slouch, though, at this point. Intuitively, he wore the crown at first with humility. Though changes would come during the 1040s, Edward began with no major moves to speak of. Politically, it would be a few more years until the system of earldoms rotated or, or was restructured. Socially and economically, he made no moves to change the very fabric of English customs and trading practices or their partners. And ecclesiastically, Edward humbled himself at first to only intervening when a vacancy occurred. For the most part, Edward was received warmly in England from top to bottom after that first year or two. Except for one curiosity that, at first, did no more than needle at the recesses of an Englishman's paranoid subconscious. They couldn't quite initially put their fingers on it, but, but Edward's arrival seemed, I don't know, off. When Edward arrived, he arrived with the expected entourage, so that wasn't strange. When Hartha Canute died, Edward was in no way implicated in his death, so that wasn't up for debate either. When he took the crown, this new guy wasn't strutting around like Canute screaming off with their heads like he's the Queen of Hearts. But yet, I don't, it's just something was off, and it wasn't until a vacancy popped up in 1044 that people stopped and realized what it, what it was, really. What was a bit askew with regards to this new, maybe-too-good-to-be-true King Solomon they had on their hands. Remember how Edward had spent his decades between, say, 1016 and 1042? Well, he spent them cow-chopping across Normandy. Now, this afforded him around 25 years, again, of bouncing from one ducal nobleman's house to another. It's easily assumed that he was in the very room and even having one-on-one -on -one conversations with the young Norman Duke himself, William the Bastard. Edward moved around, like, a lot. <laughs> and in those days, and, and spending time in Rouen, the ducal capital of Normandy at the time, afforded him the opportunity to not only learn Norman customs, but Norman politics and language as well. But then there's the idea of connections. Yeah, Edward was making connections during that 25 or so years. In fact, it's not much of a stretch that he had also visited Paris, which is rumored to be uh, true, possibly meeting the King of France himself. Again, connections. And after this failed invasion of England during Harold Harefoot's reign, Edward immersed himself deeply into ecclesiastical matters, as we've learned already, this, though, afforded him many more opportunities to endear himself to the spiritual dimension of a kingdom, as well as, that's right, more connections. One place Edward was rumored to have spent a noteworthy amount of time was the Abbey of Jumiege, then led by Abbot Robert. Students of history will recognize this name right away. And this abbot, this Abbot Robert of Jumiege, was a member of Edward's retinue when, in 1042, Edward answered his half-brother's invitation to come back to England. And in 1044, Edward had his first major ecclesiastic vacancy to fill. 
the bishopric of London. And who better than the abbot, whom he no doubt befriended and conversed with many times during his self-imposed journey of self-discovery over the last five or so years? The problem was, see, England was really digging this whole return of an English king thing happening. But what didn't quite occur to them at first was how this particular English king brought some baggage with him. England was about done with foreigners inserting themselves into their kingdom. And here was this quote-unquote return to normalcy, bringing foreigners with them. In fact, it was quickly discovered that Edward's household, except for times when court was held or, or Edward entertained visitors around the kingdom, Edward's household spoke nothing but Norman French. And now with this Norman French-speaking king installed, installing one of his own Norman retinue into the role of bishop of one of England's preeminent spiritual hubs, well, this raised some serious red flags for everyone. Well, some more than others, even. Do you remember how Godwin chose patience over action when he was deciding whether to make a move on the crown or not, following Hartha Knut's death? Godwin might have felt he, at this point, made a serious error, because nothing screams more of the same like foreigners being installed into major positions of power. And nothing screams, you may be prosperous, but you'll never be king, than King Edward unilaterally installing his old friend and advisor, Robert of Jumiege, as the new Bishop of London. In short, Godwin was no fan of Edward's decision. See, Okay, spoiler alert here. It's my contention that the Norman conquest of England wasn't a 1066 thing. In fact, many historians include the following two or three decades uh, in that conquest due to the rebellions and uneasy tensions around the kingdom for years after William's victory over Harold at Hastings. With a little bit of hindsight in our favor, we can arguably say that this appointment of the Norman clergyman to one of the highest ecclesiastic positions in England marks the beginning of the unofficial first stage of what would become known as the Norman Conquest of England. I hope you enjoyed this installment and fourth episode in this new season. Please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast hosting service or app. Also, don't be a stranger. You can reach me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as email at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com. We have a lot in store for the show this year, including bonus episodes that will fill in any backstory we're unable to tuck in during each episode, which will be found on Patreon. So I highly encourage you to become a Patreon supporter for as low as just a couple bucks per month. My 2021 goal is for this podcast to be 100% ad-free and listener-supported. So please, if you find the show at all worthwhile, then I ask that you continue to share the show. Thank you so much for your support. You can tell a lot about a person when it comes to how they spend their time. And thank you for spending this time learning about our collective story. Until next time.